Hello friends, my name is Steve and we are here today to start the Aspect Emperor series with the Judging Eye. We are reading chapters one through four, so we'll be discussing those chapters. And uh, we are back from our break. So it was a nice, it was a, it was weird having a Friday without coming by and talking. So Katerina, how was your break? And also, can you give us an introduction? Hi, I'm Katerina. Uh, this is my second time reading The Judging Eye. I actually read it just a couple of months ago. So you would think it's fresh in my memory. Uh, I'm afraid it isn't. <laughs> there were a lot of things I did not remember reading. Um, my weekend was good. It was pretty intense, quite exhausting. I did a lot of traveling. I'm happy to be back and happy to be talking about the Aspect Emperor series with you too. Nice. And Daniel, how was your weekend? And can you give us an introduction? Um, Daniel, I had a decent weekend. I didn't do any airplane traveling, so not as exciting as Katerina. It was not very exciting. Oh. <laughs> not, not the traveling part. <laughs> and I've read this book a few times, so I know a little bit more than the thing called Steve and Katerina. <laughs> <laughs> And since it's your first read, Steve, what did you think? Well, yeah, it is my first read. Um, okay, so after the thousandfold thought, I had some I had some thoughts, but I wondered where we would go from there because it seemed like a like a weird place to finish a trilogy. And I love the time jump. I think it's what like twenty years in the future. I really like that, and I really, really like seeing everyone in, in a different position because we went from them, from uh, Kellis being basically a stranger to working his way up and gaining power as through the trilogy, and then now he's, you know, up there. Espinette is went from being a prostitute to being like a queen, uh, or, you know, like running an empire basically. And I love just hearing what's happened, or at least getting bits and pieces of what's happened between. The end of the thousandfold thought and now is especially love the children i love to love hearing about the kids and i'm sure we'll talk about that but um so far i think i i'm really liking this one i think this is i it has a different I, I don't, i'm not sure if one of you can can kind of touch on this too but it, it has a different feel to it i don't i can't really put my finger on what it is but it feels a little a little um like a little looser like the in the Prince of Nothing, through a lot of the books, every word felt really heavy. Like it felt really packed. It felt really dense. And not that this book isn't dense, but it, it feels like there's more air. Like it's a little bit easier to um, to kind of get into. Uh, what did What did you guys think? Well, it's interesting what you say about the time time jump because i generally whether it's in books or films or any kind of media i hate when there are like time skips when when we move when we move forward in time um and i think a lot of it a lot of it, it has to do with the fact that i i often don't feel i don't find it realistic how you know there's a character that i knew at a certain place in a certain time i knew there like I knew their personality and I kind of had an idea who they were. And then you see them like 10, 20 years later and they're a completely different person. And I always find it hard to believe how that person got from point A to point B. Um, but with this series, I have to say, 
it's not as bad as as uh, I don't have as many complaints. I think he does a pretty good job of like moving like moving the characters forward in time, but in a way where you see how they got from where you last saw them to the point where they are now. Um, especially with Akamian, like you, even from like at the end of the Thousand Fall Plot, you like you see how he's becoming this grumpy, bitter old wizard, and he's just more—it's just more intense in the Judging Eye. So that like the trajectory, how he got from the end of the Thousand Fold Plot to the beginning of the Judging Eye is—it's very. Like it feels natural, so I think he does a really good job at that. Even though it's not my favorite thing in books in general. And Daniel, this is your—you read this one a few times. What did you think about the time jump? I would say I usually don't like time jumps either, but this one didn't bother me. I think when I very first read it, the first time it kind of did bother me, and the fact that Akamian was just like doing nothing seemingly bothered me a lot because I thought he was going to be like the opposing force. Hmm. And then 20 years later, he's just a grumpy old man in a tower with like slaves that aren't really slaves. They're like his only friends that he lets them be married and have kids. It's pretty much like a guest that's living in a tower that just sits and reads books and has written thousands and thousands of Dream memories trying to chase something and the kids are really interesting even the nameless ones yeah. yeah and I think a lot of people consider this book to be more like the darkness that comes before since it's kind of an introduction maybe that's what you like the darkness that comes before a lot, so maybe that appeals to you. We get like new characters, so it kind of all seems new. And I noticed, like you're saying, especially with uh, SMNet parts, they talk like a lot about architecture and the surroundings, and it just wasn't as heavy. Hmm. There was a lot of looking around and seemingly unimportant stuff like it's more of a story and less of a history kind of it's a really great point and i think of it i didn't think of it that way but yeah it's a really good point yeah i i i don't really know how to describe it i do agree with you that the tone is maybe a little bit different it reads a little bit different but i i've really struggled to put into words how or what makes it feel that way um but it's true that the prince of nothing feels like it has more gravitas there's hmm. it somehow reads maybe more ominous um maybe that's because some of the characters in the judging eye are younger but maybe a little bit less cynical than the characters in in darkness or in the Prince of Nothing trilogy. Um, but it's really it's really hard to point my finger to what makes it feel different. Hmm. The um, I was a little bit of surprised because in the in the first trilogy we have in the beginning we had 
a pretty detailed account of what happened, kind of a recap. And we didn't have much of that at all. We had the letter or that was a page and a half, a little bit of detail there, but that was about it as far as like a recap of what happened. And it was from a certain perspective. It wasn't like a, um, like an overview was like someone's perspective of what happened or like a quick Oh, it's, it's there. It's, but it's at the end of the book. Mm, okay. But I think if I remember correctly, I think you can just read it now. I don't think it, I think there's a section at the end of the book that is called what's come before. And I think he just like pretty much covers the events of the Prince of Nothing trilogy. So I think you can, I think you can probably read it now and it doesn't spoil anything for you. It might give you a little bit more like context for what, ha for what happened in the Prince of Nothing. Um, but I don't think there are any spoilers for this book. So why would you summarize this book inside the book? No, I mean that for like the trilogy, like the first trilogy, I was a little bit surprised that it didn't it didn't recap the first trilogy for someone coming into this one. Um, the there were the only thing I I didn't like about the time jump was the um, we kind of don't know a whole lot about the greater deal yet. We know a little bit. That was the only thing I was kind of like another mystery. Or not really mystery, but another big event that we have to learn about, I guess. That seems like they're at the beginning of this great ordeal and we're kind of learning as we go. That we, I... missed, we missed out on the unification wars, mm. yeah. which happened before and somehow I don't, one of the Phantom has still like escaped capture and is I forget, they call them like the bandit Phantom or something like that. Yeah, he's the bandit Pederaja. Yeah. Phenile. The uh, so, last, last, what's he, the, the last Pederaja of uh, the canyon. And then after how powerful Kellos appears to be, it seems strange that he's evaded capture for that long. But I guess the Great Ordeal has been happening for how long? Has it already been happening for seven years? Is that what it said? I think, has it, yeah, I think it's in the middle of, or it's kind of mid, um, in the middle of it. I think it's, um, I forget exactly how long, but yeah, it's kind of, that's the only thing that I felt a little bit jarring about is that we missed those those events. After being so close to the Holy War, it seemed a little, little weird to miss so many other events in between. Yeah, there's a lot that happened in between. Um, I think it's maybe a little bit clearer now why the book that Akamian wrote is called the Compendium of the First Holy War. Is there apparently were um, several Holy Wars between the end of the first one and and where we are now. But I don't know that I would necessarily want to read about those events because like the, the aspect emperor, I think it's about something different. Like that's just not the focus of the series at all. Hmm. And we already read about one holy war. So yeah, I think it might, it it more, might be a bit repetitive. I think I was more surprised that there was more holy wars. Um, Cause it seemed like the first holy war seemed really um, this monumental event that took so long and 
and it seemed a little strange that there were so many more of them. It kind of made it feel like it's happened again and again. So it just kind of had a weird feeling to it. Like um, being so close to the first one, it it's like, did there have to be more holy wars in between? Could it just be something else? But you know, it, it's that's a small small gripe. They, they were the un, unification wars. They were just getting the last little bits of people together, like Harwill and Sorwill in these chapters were some of the last stubborn people who called him a demon sifring, I think. They... Yeah, I, I think Kellis needed to unify the three seas before he was able to start any preparations for the Great Ordeal. Um, and because he basically established something similar to a theocracy and declared himself the, the presence of God on Earth, it makes sense that those um, wars of conquest would be referred to as holy wars. But I don't think they're necessarily copied the events of the first holy war because that was mu very much about Kellis's accession to power. Um, in the prologue, I did like that. I did like the changes that had happened since then because it, uh, one of the notes I had written down was the scalping years and they were hunting shrank and they were bringing scalps of shrank back. I thought that was pretty neat that it changed when it kind of shrank became this, you know, something that was hunted instead of hunting. Yeah. What did you do? You have any guesses about the stranger that arrives among the, the skull boy? Any ideas of who they might be or why they're searching for these scalpers? You know what I've noticed, to get off on a little bit of a tangent, you know what I've noticed since I've started reading this series in Malazan that everyone told me, not everyone, but most people will tell you, just don't try, to, don't try to think about what's happening. Just read it. Just enjoy it. Don't try to guess where it's going. Just go along for the ride. I, I think my brain has changed where I used to try and predict things, and now I don't try and predict things. So I, have, I, have, I have no clue. And even if um, this series especially, it's... There's just so many different possibilities and weird things that happen. So I honestly have no idea. Yeah. Okay, no, no speculations then. I won't ask any, any leading questions anymore. <laughs> so I guess, uh, yeah. So do we find out who it is? I think so, sort of, if I remember well. But not necessarily in this book. At this point, we're just looking for Iron Soul, whoever he's looking for, right? And Aino and I called Iron Soul, yeah. And a mysterious guy with a cape. <laughs> Never trust a guy wearing a cape. Probably not. So then there's the other section of the prologue, which introduces Kelmomus, one of the, well, the, the youngest of Esmanet's children, one of the, one of the twins. So what did you think of him? 
Because he's a little really, devil. Yeah, the he was the one who um, who told us, Minette, um, hate yourself for who you are. Is that is that the same one, or is that that was one of the twins, right? Neurotis, okay. the broken son. Oh, that was the one that's that's the that's the one that's locked up, right? That's in the in the room. Yeah, there was okay. The um, when he was three, he said that when he was three years old. Yeah, yeah, and I, I never really thought of it. I didn't really think about it during the events of the first trilogy, but it, it kind of reminded me of like Superman. Um, you know, what would his like the powers that he has? What would that do to someone as he learned to control it? It's kind of like what would Kellis's offspring do with that kind of ability? And what would happen? I never really thought of it. So I think that was really great seeing that the kids were so different and Espinette wanting, wanting them to love and just be kids. And they weren't, there was something else. And there's also the fact that if, if there were like normal Dunyan, like not normal children, but like Dunyan children raised by the Dunyan, they probably have some system for how they raise their children and how they teach them how to cope with the abilities that they're born with. But Esmanette or Kellas don't have any of this support system. So I can't imagine just like, how, how do you raise a child like that? Like there's, there's, I'm no, I'm, it's so much admiration for Esmond for putting up with this, and I have no idea how you would handle this as a parent. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> and also, before this point, it's Dunyans, like among Dunyans, and these are little kids among adults who are little kids to them. So hmm. it's a little different. I especially like the the nameless one that was born with with eight arms and no eyes. That was drowned in was it wine in unfiltered mm -hmm. wine? Yeah, unwatered wine. Unwatered wine. Yeah. Yeah, and then there, I think there's another thirteen that were, um, that the uh, concubines gave birth to, which is even crazier. Like it, it made me wonder like what it is about Esmanet, like what makes her so special that she is able to give birth to live and, and healthy children. Um whereas seemingly no other women that Callus has tried to have children with was able to um do that. Or mm -hmm. e even if she, like even if she gave even if they gave birth to children that were alive, they were deformed or just monstrosities as they, as they describe it. In the previous books, it alluded to Kellis selecting her for her intellect, hmm. for how smart she is, being comparable, at least able to handle the Dunyan blood. Yeah, but, but like, is there like a blood test for this? I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure like she's an intelligent woman, but she's, I mean, she can't be the only intelligent woman in the three C's. Make nets there, so there was one other original successful one. 
who knows who his mother is. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't think we we don't know at this point at all. Or, well, at least I don't. Maybe we do. I mean, I missed something. I have no idea. Yeah, I missed that. It was re revealed. Oh, and then we find out that the compendium of the first Holy War we've been reading is a banned book that would get us killed for having read it. All of those quotes. And I think he talks about how they kill everyone and he, when he sends the letter, he's just waiting for them to tell him to kill himself or for someone to kill him now because he even heard the words. I, I really, I really like the letter and the way it establishes like what kind of governance government Kellis has built since oh, like over the, the past 20 years and how really it is like he has built it on faith and that there are like people genuinely believe that he is like the coming of God and and people are willing to die for for this religion. Essenet affirms that when she's like talks about wondering what happened to all of those concubines of Kellis's and all of the slaves that were the like birth mothers because they're all dead now. Had to be a secret. She's really struggling with her need to punish people. I feel like she even like said somewhat remorselessly that some mothers might have to sell their kids. It's just tough times. Even though that's like kind of what broke her initially. She has, uh, she seems to have a lot of misgivings about the position she is in now. Um, she, like, I think on one hand, she, she, she like, yeah, she realizes the, the power that she has over people and um, how like one word, one small decision she make can affect thousands of people's lives. But then she also seems to suffer from a pretty strong imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, like she's constantly doubting like whether she has the ability to rule an empire like this and um, whether the fact like whether she, it's even real that she's an empress like i think there's one section where she's she's kind of imagining that it's all a dream like it, it can be real that she the the prostitute from simna is the empress of the entire three seas and that she's mother to the imperial children and just seems so surreal that she would be like that she would get to, from where she was to the position where she is now It seems like Maithanet's kind of her um, advisor, kind of her confidant. He kind of brings, kind of reassures her, and that Kellis wouldn't have chosen her if she wasn't capable. Kind of somebody that pulls her off that ledge. She's really turned <clears throat> inwardly to like her motherly instincts too, even though all her kids are seemingly terrible. 
<laughs> well, Sam inca- seems incapable of love. Terrible. Who knows? Just incapable of being a like child. Yes, Sammy. Sammy is the only one that seems to genuinely love his mom, but it's hard to tell. And Kelmomus is the only one who can imitate it. <laughs> yeah. I guess they said Sarway was pretty normal, and then Kellis sent her off to become a witch. So, oh yeah, <laughs> and they they have a female school of magic now. Women are getting all kinds of powers in this new world. One's even been the leader for seven years. And her face is on every coin, I think. Said. Yeah, I think we talked about it last time that, um, you know, Kellis was already making some changes in the, um, in the way that the, the society sort of works. And I guess this seems to be like another, another result of that. Him giving more power to to women and like why i mean why i guess it's like a rational thing for him to do like if you have all these like witches with unused potential that you can now you know put in a magical school and then they will work for you because they're probably grateful that they can now finally do magic legally because of you I don't know, that's just like that's just my my theory with my hypothesis. Um, I don't think we really learn much about the school at this point, besides the fact that it exists and it's sanctioned by the emperor, and that um, Serwa is a member of it. Kellis didn't seem to have uh, any. Well, at least it wasn't explicitly said that he had any problems shipping her off to the school once he learned that she had the was the gift. So I don't know if he's capable of truly loving that everything is for a purpose like we've talked about through the first trilogy. Everything is for a on the path for a goal or for you know for something. So I don't know if he can just love. And maybe that's why his kids are incapable. I mean the kids are just the diluted version, so I, I imagine it's just even more extreme than Kellis. And I think he does say in, in, in Darkness that comes before that he is an incapable of loving someone. Um, I think he says it to New York. So it would make sense that he doesn't blink an eye when he's deciding whether to send his three-year-old daughter to a faraway city to train as a sorceress. He did feel a feeling twice, though, I remember, <laughs> and they were strange to him. So, <laughs> yeah. what is love? Maybe, maybe in the end, it'll be, it'll come down to what is love. Uh, okay, I have, a, I have a what's probably going to be an unpopular opinion about. I can only speak for the first four chapters. I didn't get ahead like Daniel did, but <laughs> but uh, in the first four chapters, I can say, and uh, I don't know if you know. So I I like that Nora's not around. I don't miss him at all. No, don't. <laughs> um, you are forgiven. Okay. You know what? Like one of the reasons 
I, I kind of waited for a very long time to start the Aspect Emperor series. Was Well, it was because I knew there was a Temtem, which already um, made me a bit hesitant. Um, but I also like knowing, like, it's, it's sort of finishing off the Thousandfold Thought where my favorite characters either die or like disappear. It's just, I didn't have a lot of motivation to start a book where like none of my favorite people were going to appear, most likely. Um, but, you know, if you're not a fan, that's fine. Did, did that, that make you happy that there were some new characters to maybe invest into then, since all your old favorite ones just found themselves on the short end of the stick? <laughs> You no, know, uh, I think it was last time. I'm not sure if it was when we were recording or after, but we had mentioned, or you had mentioned, both of you, that there was new characters in the next series that we were introduced to. And at the time, I was like, I don't want to learn about new characters. I, I like these characters. And then, but now that I've gotten into the judge and I, I really like this injection of new personalities and new people. I think it really needed it after that first trilogy to kind of. Um, different perspectives and different characters in the mix in the story. Um, and I really like Noir. I just think he's, I think it's, he's, his story is, I, I'm, I'm always talking about the first four chapters, so he may come back in chapter five, but I, I liked him being gone. At least, at least I'll say it's nice to have a break. How's that? <laughs> it's quite intense. And like, I mean, in some ways you could say that his story is kind of completed at the end of the thousandfold thought. Um, like there is a sort of resolution to to the conflict that he's been he was fighting most of the most of the trilogy. Um, so it's fine. It was just um, it was a bit hard for me. But as you said, there are new characters that we get introduced to. Um, I think that Sorwheel is adorable. He's such a sweet, sweet soul. I really like him. Um, I I think I have come to like my Mara over time. Though I did find it find it quite difficult to get attached to at the beginning. And there there are other characters that are going to be introduced, I think later in this book that I think are very interesting to read about. So they're definitely like, I have found some new people. It's it just not reached the same, like they're just not as, I don't know, they did not, they're not Nior, they're not Compass, they're not some of the other people that I really like in Prince of Nothing, but they're good characters. They're definitely people I like in this trilogy as well. I think, I think part of it is that, I mean, again, I've only read the first four chapters, but so far the, the feeling I'm getting from this world is where would noir fit it's almost like he may not fit in this world his um his um his energy his his personality and his brute force kind of approached everything would that would that fit now where would he where would he be like what would he do i'll talk from that historical three c's viewpoint and that is that the last we seen him he was with the consul and 
in the first apocalypse, the consul and the Sylvendi fought side by side. So maybe he's gone forever. Maybe he's not, but he is with the consul, and the consul are at the head of this war. Yeah, I mean, certainly so far, we've only seen. Well, we've only seen we we got the um the scenes in Momem, um, which is sort of Callus's camp, and we got some scenes in Sakarpas, which just been conquered by, uh, by the Great Ordeal, which is also um that's part of uh Callus's tribe. So the only like, and we know that Neor is not going to side with Kellis. I think that's that's a fairly reasonable conclusion. So, if anything, like I would imagine him maybe working together with a Kamian, maybe maybe siding with the consult. But it's 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 unclear what what's happened to him. At the end of the Thousandfold Thought, and we don't learn anything new in these four chapters for sure. I don't think we've seen, we've seen, I think we'll see him again at some point. He's going to play a bigger part at some point. But I, it's nice having a break. <laughs> I mean, I, it pains me to hear it, but I'm happy to um, feel that way, I guess. <laughs> I, at, I, at least I, one of us happy. I really liked his story in the first series, and I think it had the best conclusion of any of the arcs of story, besides the one that turned into dead ends. All of Katarina's favorite characters. <laughs> yeah. They're all definitely ended. His could end, and it could be a satisfactory story. He got somewhat revenge on Nalingus, even though Kellis like named him, so he was easy to kill. I don't think it was a happy ending, but he did get a sort of a closure. He could walk off in the sunset with Sirway, just live his life forever, happy ever after. Good old Nair. Yeah. Yeah, he he deserves some peace of mind. So maybe he got it. Maybe he didn't. Maybe we'll know. Maybe we won't. They can't all be Sabon. Well, Sabon seems to be doing very fine. <laughs> him, him and Proyas were the two exalt generals from the first Holy War, so they're. I guess the two most powerful generals now. Besides yeah, it, it did. It did. It, I was very saddened to read that they were named the exalt generals, considering that Confus was the previous exalt general. You know, it just felt like rubbing your fingers in the wound. I thought it was sweet poetry like that poet that said something about Asimet without her realizing at first. What was it? Yeah, I was, something I was something is the heart. 
Like I'm not I'm I'm not I suck at poetry analysis. So I it did not occur to me that that was one way how you could interpret the poem. But then I wonder is she maybe just overanalyzing things? Seeing or is all about her? Yeah, like is it just paranoia or is it is it like foreshadowing of something um actually happening something boiling underneath the surface she has ruled for seven years without kellis being there and it seems every year his influence pollutes them less and less we'll call it pollutes there's more and more people seeming to come against him. I think for every one that comes out, he said, uh, Nathanette said there's 10 in the shadows, just like, just like him. So there is dissent among the people, it seems. But she's ruled for seven years. That's a pretty good rule. She can keep going, can't she? Kellis saw something in her, which was her weakness, she thinks now. I wonder because like Kellis has a very particular way of ruling over people that centers around people like, have like being complete true believers in him and like his him being a prophet or him being sent from God whatever um and it's really, I, I, it must be really hard to replicate that if you're not as godlike as Kellis. So, I mean, Esmeralda can only ever be, um, like, she can, I don't think she can ever really replace Kellis in the system of governance that he built around himself. She can always just be like an intermediary to the gods um like it's like it's it's very obvious that she is just human and humans can be replaced by other humans while Achilles pretends or claims to be something more than a human that's and is not maybe as easily replaceable so I'm not surprised that there there is are some signs of of the empire sort of starting to crumble. It's like how do how do you how do you keep a system of flow that's basically based on a like personality cult when the personalities left the cult on its own? And he's taken all the men and all the food and all of the money what he didn't spend on strength scalps over the past, <laughs> I think, 11 years, it said. At first, I think it said they were giving a gold talent for each one, and then it turned down to 10 silver or something like that. But still, it's a significant amount of money that has come from somewhere. Probably poor farmers. Hmm. 
And they built granaries also. I think it talks about they built granaries kind of towards the north and started stashing food in there so they could not make the same blunders and somehow host this army. I think they said they had been like buying sheep and just herding them as far north as they could and hopefully they can find them later and eat them. <laughs> it, it does seem that Callus has put a lot of thought into the uh, logistics of the Great Ordeal. Um, and, and they do talk about the fact that um, probably maybe more people might die of just hunger and disease before they reach Golgothareth than in the actual battle because it takes so much food to move country, uh, move a, an army across a continent. And, and it's unlikely that the consul would come to them, so they have to march to the consul. And they already had 20,000 people die from a lung plague. Just, in a, just on the walk, I guess. These walks are brutal, aren't they? Marches. I've only went on like a day or two trek once or twice, but it is pretty brutal once you get a day away from a car. <laughs> well, I guess they would be marching very slowly because they're transporting all the food and all the uh, equipment. Unless you have a horse, you probably won't walk more than a few miles a day, I would think. But it seems it seems much better organized than the first holy war. I think Kellis learned some lessons there. Stay away from the desert. Yeah, I don't think you'll find many deserts in the north. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> this book does feel a lot greener to me. Um like when I think of it like the association like that I get is always like forests and plain like grass whereas the the first book I always think of the desert and sort of like the the drought and heat and the sun Kellis uses like mist or what is it he uses some voodoo magic just <laughs> Maybe not yeah. voodoo, maybe it's just physics, but it's never very good at physics anyway. <laughs> thickens the air somehow and creates clouds around everyone, so it would take some wetness around to do that, some coldness. It does feel a lot colder. The bird was a stork, which is like a cold ocean bird, kind of. Yeah, wh what was that about? Um, it, it seemed to be some kind of an omen, um, maybe intended for the, for the, for the king of Sicarpus, but I was not at all, I, I hadn't, I have no idea what it's supposed to represent. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that either.
I would just then, say spectacle. Kellis knows how to control the scene really well. Hmm. He, so are you are you are you implying that the he's city. what was that? No, uh, all right, so are you implying that he maybe sent the stork or that maybe he like conjured up the stork? I don't know. It did disappear quick. <laughs> he did he did appear right behind it. Or yeah, in maybe. this guy next to it, so everyone looking at it would see the light that he was. So maybe just got scared. I don't know. Um, but the king sends um, Sorwheel um, away immediately after um, the stork, the stork, and Kellis appear. Even though originally he was supposed to be fighting on the walls, which is also very suspicious. <laughs> and um... then, then there's sort of. He's sort of being, he's like, they're running through the city and they're running into the citadel and then they get there and, and Kells just blasts a hole through the wall and kills everyone. And then um, Sorwheel pees himself, poor little thing, because he's so scared. And then, then Kells embraces him and, and tells him that he's forgiven. And, and he's like, what the hell is happening? How, why is this demon being nice to me? That was kind of odd, yeah, the, you know, that sequence. Yeah, he's like, I would never forgive you. And he's like, no, your father, not me. And before that, they had seen a mage that had somehow been in the city that just blasted the wall down, the, the gate, front gate. They're talking about just running through the mist, and then they see a shadow, and his eyes just turn into white, and then the front gate starts getting blasted open. So, yeah, at first I wasn't sure if it was Kellis or not, but I guess it was a, a different sorcerer. Kellis is just too blinding of a white light and he's already floating up in the sky, <laughs> creating all the mist. It appears as though their war tactics are much better than they were before. 14 siege towers or something it said and I don't even think they even made it to the gates by the time the whole thing was over. Kellis just showed up and killed everyone probably. He's definitely more powerful than he was at the end of book two. I, I wonder if, if he was series. I wonder if he's more powerful or if he's always been this powerful and just didn't use his powers. I think he still, I mean, magic is something that you need to learn. Like it's you, you like you, you may have the potential, but it's not like an innate ability. So even if Kellis has like an incredibly um, steep learning curve, I think it's still something that he had to study with other sources. Like he had a Kami and teach him the basics of, of sorcery. So I, I would assume that he had other mandate school men or any any of the sorcerers from any of the other schools teach him their tricks as well. Mm -hmm. Though he probably 
just pick them up very quickly. Yeah, the Gnosis is the most powerful school, and he learned that first, but the other schools have some secrets too. And war is intellect, and the longer he has to hone his intellect, the more powerful, I guess, he'll, he should be. He's got to be, what, 50-something now, though? 52 years old? Yeah, he was 33, and darkness that comes before i think so 55 maybe yeah something like that like mccamian's a little bit older a unstalled gray-haired wizard okay <laughs> speaking of uh mccamian and him teaching so my is it my mira the pr pronunciation i say I Mara, yeah i say my mara as well Mara. Okay. You, you're both way smarter than I am, so we'll say that. Um, it's, it's not about being smart. It's just <laughs> whatever's, whatever fits into your mouth better, I guess. So I, I did like that whole sequence of her trying to convince him to teach her. And there's, there's another scene towards the end. I think it was the end of chapter four, maybe. That it came in and that they were together, but were they intimate? Okay, yeah, because it was little. Okay, I was I, I thought so, but it, it wasn't a very kind of meant kind of so that there was like blankets of, uh, you know, like they were together, but he had his hands around her on her, and they were talking. I wasn't sure. If, that was kind of, yeah. It says she seduced him, and he said it'll never happen again. It was a mistake. Yeah. So whatever. So, happened. Yeah, I think they both ended up ended up regretting it afterwards but it did happen i think it made namara like him less and it made her him like her more though even though they both did regret it like had a opposite effects and namara's got something weird going on with her she's one of the few but also she has some weird broken part that opens up sometimes and can differentiate a snake from a rabbit is that what it said <laughs> I um i think it talked about her being able to see good and evil which, which makes it stain yeah which makes it sound like good and evil are somehow determined things in this world but like when, they're, she, they're, yeah. when she sees Akamian, she decides that it's not good and evil because she thinks Akamian is good. It's damnation she sees when she looks at his state. So, but then it's, so you can be good, but still damned. It's very, that's a very strange concept. Well, in it, it talks about like the, how the animals some animals have, are like going to heaven and some animals are going to hell. And they're just animals. Like yeah, I all, think all snakes she, go to heaven? That's crazy. I think she mentions that good men shine brighter than good women. Which I find bizarre. 
that was a weird statement. Yeah, it's, I mean, up until that point, I just assumed that the, um, you know, the, the, like the, the sexism in, in this world was just like a product of the society. But this seems to imply that it's like the sort of hierarchy between sexes is like an objective fact about the world. According to the outside, even. Yeah, that's what it appears to imply. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very um, discomforting idea. And poor, I think, was it pigs that are damned as well? Or was it the snakes? No, it snakes, seems very unfair. Snakes were good, which surprised me. It was something like pigs were damned for sure. And I, I feel like they said... <laughs> rabbits too and for some reason wolves aren't them hmm. hmm i don't know maybe they're like very masculine so that's why they get to go to heaven i don't know because they're predators it appears pretty picky and choosy and it really makes the original holy war seem different or the Phantom were fighting D and Rithy, and whose side was the good side? They both seemed pretty terrible, but maybe the outside has favorites. Yeah, maybe it's just not supposed to make sense. <laughs> I'm pretty old, and I've been out around lots of religious people and religious talks and a lot of it still doesn't make sense to me in, in this world. So. Well, I'm certainly, I'm certainly curious to find out more about the outside and about whether there are some like hard, hard rules about what you have to do or who you have to be in order to go to heaven or go to hell. And Katarina, this is your second time reading. You read this one a couple of months ago, right? That's right. Uh, what did you notice in these first few chapters? Or did you notice anything that stood out to you that you didn't catch the first time? I don't think there are necessarily things I didn't notice. It was obviously it was a lot easier because I already knew who the new characters are. Um, I would say maybe... What changed this time is I have more sympathy for the female characters. Mm -hmm. I find it a little bit, a little bit hard to read um, Esmenet's POV um, because she seems so like it. It kind of feels when you read it, it feels like she's drowning. Like you had this her like you had this like incredible arc um, in the Prince of Nothing, where she goes from being this like lowliest person to this extremely powerful person and then you start the judging eye and she's just like always complaining how hard it is to be an empress and she seems so obsessed with her children I found really uncomfortable um but I think this time around I have a lot more just like understanding for where she's coming from and I can relate to 
um, maybe maybe because I just read it like a little bit, you know, I've, I've read the first two books in this in this series. Like I'm maybe I have just a little bit more context, so I I have more I can relate to the how she's feeling now and 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 the situation that she's in and how having all those weird experiences with Kellis and giving birth to his strange mutant children, how that would that you know who can show no affection to her how like how that would kind of mess her up and and also just how hard it can be to try to keep um control over an empire that is so big and so difficult to manage um so i think i have a lot of more a lot more sympathy for for her and also for my mara um she I know, she she's she's she also like she's such a tragic character that it was quite uncomfortable for me to read like is like we have we had already we had survey in the first trilogy and we had Asmaneth and it was pretty sometimes it was pretty um bleak to read about these women so I thought oh here's another one but I I did come to like her by the end of the um, the second book the wildlife warrior so it's been more more enjoyable to read um, read the judging eye, read their like their their scenes in the judging eye um, again. What about you, Daniel? You've read this a uh, couple of times, a few times. Is there anything that stood out to you this time? <laughs> a couple things. So. weird relationship between the twins that it's only briefly talked about but it talked about how they had to get some sort of like witch doctor to make them finally stop staring at each other and become themselves somehow and then when you get the views from Kilmomas's point of view he like has a secret voice that's always talking to him and we don't know exactly what Sammy thinks but according to his mom, he doesn't think that much. So <laughs> he should be the one that she loves the most, but she loves Kelmomis because he seems to be there and to have love. But he also pinches beetles and wish, just thinks about killing everyone. Wants his mom all to his devotion to his mom is strange too because he'll talk about how like dumb she is but then also that she's like the most glorious thing in the world to him at the same time he's very possessive of asmanet and he hates kellis that that is very clear even from just just from the prologue And then we got some mundane dreams by Seswatha, which has been kind of, that was kind of weird. I came in just talking about stubbing a toe, how traumatic it was in his dreams that usually involved this like mass murder. Yeah, it's like a toe, what a breakthrough. But it, I mean, also, it is interesting. Um, sorry to interrupt the the dreams 
Um, we there 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 was one dream at the end of the thousandfold thought that the Kamian had. I think like in the last chapter maybe, which also seemed to change from the dreams that he would normally experience. Um, but it doesn't seem like he noticed that that in, in, in that dream, like it seems like something he only come to re he only came to realize over 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 years, over a couple of years that his, his dreams were starting to change. And it makes you wonder why that is. Like what is it maybe because he's a wizard? Like because he's left the mandate that he gets to dream differently? Or has it is like is it gen are these like is he dreaming the real dreams? Or are they maybe, you know, maybe someone implanted them? Um or are are the is the mandate sort of dreaming some false dreams and now Kamin's the the, the one who's actually discovering the truth about Saswatha? Like I, I'm suspicious that you know he's suddenly getting these revelations. It's 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 odd. And how one of the kings might have been his son actually Saswatha's son maybe. Seems like Akanian also at one point says he thinks maybe Saswatha's trying to talk to him directly somehow through these mundane dreams. But even he doesn't know. He's just trying to find meaning out of it. He talks about how even some of the more common dreams they have have variances in the ending and people have like tried to apply numbers to the variances and just went crazy trying to search for meaning in just slight changes in the dreams they share. And he's just looking for one thing. What is Ishawol? And now he finds Yay. out that the unholy con or the what do they call it? The Great Ordeal is marching and he wasn't ready to hear that news. Yeah, he thought he had more time, but like, that's what happens when you lock your lock yourself up in in a tower and don't talk to anyone for ten years. But he 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 is very very single minded and just focused on. I mean, is it revenge that he's looking that he's looking for? Um, it does seem like he. It doesn't seem like he, he he cares about the world or saving the world from the console or anything anything worldly. It just seems that he wants to learn the truth about Kellis and and destroy him with proof. the help of that. Yeah. Proof is what is driving Akamian at this point. Like what does he? But what does he think is going to happen if you know, like, whether he's going to show up in moment and tell us minutes? See, I, I, I was right all along. I, I don't like. I don't like. She knows. Like I, I think she's lost. From what I can tell, even just from like this one chapter, I, 
it seems like she's pretty much lost the the infatuation that she has with Kellis. She, she's she's moved like she's moved beyond that. Yeah, she doesn't like being around them, but she also believes that the consult is real and that everything he's doing is right. But to her, he's like horrible. <laughs> I think it talks about how she was surprised they even had the twins because like. She wanted nothing to do with them long before that, once she realized all her kids were just going to be incapable of love. And the kid she gave away comes back and now just has hate instead, which is justified, I guess. Yeah, I think she, at, at some point she mentions that the consult or the... the threat of the skin spies are the one thing that um like the reason why she suffers Kellis. and it's a pretty stark contrast to the love that she was professing for Kellis at the end of uh the first trilogy hmm. kind of the right. same trajectory that Akamian had with Kellis, that they he had this um, infatuation that he couldn't stand to be around him well, for other reasons, but kind of the same path. Right now, action-wise, Kellis is doing what he should do to stop the second apocalypse. He's giving money to shrink heads. He's amassed an army to go up and up, like fight the strength or whatever he's trying to do with this great ordeal and that is the goal of the mandate and what they think they need to stop the second apocalypse and this rank are like the horde so the horde needs to be cold but personage wise he's for sure a false prophet they know that because he's it, basically admitted it to those few people so he's doing what should be done but admittedly a false prophet and a horrible person it's just... so a weird needle point Kellis is on yeah it's it's he's it's like he's, he's almost the hero of the story but do the do the ends really justify the means but I mean, if you if you end up saving the world from from a genocide, does that does that not make you a good guy? <laughs> I don't know. You know, even if you make a few people in your life miserable, and you know, some like few thousand or tens of thousands die on the side. I don't know. That's like a moral dilemma question, I guess. You kill one person to save ten people, are you going to heaven or hell? <laughs> you kill the person, so. Well, anything I else? Guess, uh, um, let's go ahead, Jerry. I guess we'll see. I'm, I'm glad that you like these first four chapters so much because I think things are about to 
cook up a little bit now. <laughs> I think this whole, all these children, I think this whole setup is going to end very badly somehow. I'm not sure how, but you get the impression that it's just teetering on the edge. That's something, I, I don't know if many of them will survive by the time the series is over. Just you kind of get that, I don't know, for me anyway, maybe I'm just bleak. <laughs> something something bad is going to happen to most of them. I did maybe. tell you guys that I expected this series to match the darkest of the darkest stuff you've read so seems fine so far but we'll see is it darker than negative space we'll see when we get there <laughs> okay. in a enough. different in a different sense i would say for sure hmm. in, in most senses probably because I've heard from a lot of people that the fourth book is this, the it's just like this mind blowing experience. So, but so we do have my my Mara, who seems like a generally good person, and Swordwheel, who seems like a generally good person. Yeah, I think that's a sharp contrast really to the first series, right? Mm -hmm. Um. Especially surreal. I think my Mara is obviously very damaged in some respects, but she has a certain strength about her um, that does make her. It does make her feel like she is a like a positive character, even though there is a lot of trauma that she carries with her. Um, but Sorwheel for sure, like he's, um, it's it's surprising, especially for a man, like even even if he's very young, to be so uncorrupted, so so pure in some ways. It's it's well, very refreshing and very unexpected, like you wouldn't expect it in the world as we have come to know it, at least so far. That reminds me of a couple of the revelations he has. One was like about how he used to always yell at his father and be like, oh, I'm running away to the three seas. They're so much better than here. And then here this man from the three seas is coming and his father standing up to them. And he kind of reflects on how shitty of a child he was, I guess. As well as he thinks about the time that he was picking on this other like Neil cast kid and he did it for no reason and just because kind of everybody around him was doing it and just what kind of person was he for just being like that it was interesting to see him because we know he's 16 so he's definitely naive to a lot of the world but he's learning and his father told him what he would be their last sword strike against them. Is that what he said? I don't remember the exact wording. Um, I think he said something about vengeance. Let me see if I have it. Um, do I have it somewhere? He yeah he he said that Sorwell will be their final sword stroke 
um, their final vengeance. Um, but I, I just, when, sorry. There was a quote when he was thinking, and he said, war is an extension of argument, and swords were simply words honed to a bloodletting. It was always the conclusion. <laughs> I thought that was good. Yeah. After they had argued and realized that there was no resolution and war was starting. Yeah, it was it was kind of sad to see Proyas. Um, just I guess like so weary of of like twenty years of just war and and bloodshed and fighting and killing people. Um, it seemed like he genuinely wanted um, Sorwheel's dad to capitulate and join them instead of them having to fight them. Yeah, I almost thought he like saw himself in Harwell to a point, like his stubborn proudness and just unerring belief that he was right until the end when he kind of hunched over and made Sorwell sad, looking weak. Yeah, but I I love I love the relationship between Sorwell and his father. Like he he seems to be. Or seems to have seems seems to were seems to have been a um, really good role model, um, and like again, it's it's a very it's it's a very unexpectedly warm relationship between two men in this world that I wouldn't necessarily expect to see. Like no. Sorwheel's dad genuinely seems to genuinely care for his for his son, and and Sorwheel seems to have a lot of respect and love for his father as well. And they're both like loyal, nice people, and their empire seems to be like founded upon morals. And he's just like, just keep going, just leave our city alone. And then this holy group of people that are fighting in the name of God destroyed them all yeah i wonder if it's just like is it just because they're from this very like specific area of the world or is it just they happen to be nice people where despite their circumstances they we, have, we have reminded we, me of the starks reminded me of winterfell and winterfell got wrecked Yeah, I can see some perils. Hmm. Anything, uh, anything else you guys can think of? I have just one thing. What do you think about my Mara's sections, POV sections, being written in the present tense? That, that's probably the weirdest thing about this hmm. book. For me, it, it was so jarring when I first started it. I, and it took me a really long time to get used to it. And I, I'm, not st I'm still not sure that I have gotten used to it. It's just, I catch it's it, just bizarre. It, it's not jarring at all to me, but I catch it. But I know exactly what you mean. They are. When it gets to her, it's definitely written completely different. Huh. Steve didn't I mean, even notice. I didn't notice. <laughs> 
<laughs> I didn't even notice. But if you go back and read, it'll be like, I stoked the fire. I threw a log in. Hmm. And she, like, it's just all written really different compared to every single other point of view. Yeah, well, I, I noticed it immediately, and I, I've been wondering since, what is the reason for that? Like, what makes her so different from the other characters that she would get, um, like that that he would write her POV this way, and not in past tense as all the other ones. It's just it's it's strange. <laughs> I would say there's definitely a reason. It is completely different than any of the other characters. And if there wasn't a reason, you wouldn't have wasted the time. I'm sure he had to like bring himself out of his own head and his own storytelling to write her parts. Hmm. Curious to see how writing her parts was different than the rest of the parts. Because it is different. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the next next time you get to a, a Nimara point of view, just see if you notice. I didn't even notice. <laughs> it was. It did feel different. I just didn't really think about it too much. But it did. It did have a different feeling to it. But I wasn't. I didn't catch that. It's almost that on the paper. It, is how I notice it more. The whole format of the writing is just different somehow when I look at it. Hmm. Very interesting. Cool. So uh, one through four, and then next week we'll be doing about five through eight. Cool. Yeah, that sounds right. Awesome. So there are 16 chapters, and we'll do uh, four each week, kind of. Nice, uh, nice pace. So, awesome. So, uh, Katarina, where's the best place for people to find you and tell you how wrong you are about Subon? <laughs> well, you're more than welcome to uh, present your arguments to me uh, on the page string forum, or um, you can also find me on Instagram at the errand. Your inbox will your inbox will be flooded with Subon pro Subon readers. I'm, I'm sure he has a large following yeah. in the community. And Daniel, where can people find you? I'll be in the comments letting Steve know he's wrong about Nair. You can all do that with me. That's I will fair. most certainly like that comment. Yeah, that, that's fair. Yeah, Maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe I'll change my tune. I get the feeling we haven't seen the last of him. So we'll see how it works out. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody. Really appreciate it. Glad to be back and be on this next series. So we'll see everyone uh, next week.